Welcome to Used Car News Podcast. Used Car News is your top source for fast and reliable news that car dealers can rely on for this evolving industry. Here are this month's top stories. Regulators propose stricter rules for dealers. Members of the Virginia Association of Independent Auto Dealers went to their capital to lobby for the industry. And independent dealers in Washington are lobbying against a bill that would require express warranty on vehicles up to 125,000 miles. But first, we sit down with Adam Crowell, President and General Counsel for ComplyNet. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Used Car News Podcast. And today we've got a great guest, uh, Adam Crowell. He is President and General Counsel of ComplyNet. And if you guys have been to any conference, whether it's uh, National Independent Automobile Dealers Association or Buy Here, Pay Here uh, events or um, National Auto Auction Association, you've seen their name and you've probably seen Adam. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, Adam, first of all, welcome. Thanks for coming. Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much for having us here today. I really greatly appreciate it. Awesome. Great. Okay. So for people who, for the few people who may not be familiar with you, Adam, could you tell us a little bit about um, your background and of course about Compliant and what you folks do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how much time do we have, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> So just just really quickly, so uh, I am a licensed practicing attorney. Um, I'm licensed in the state of Ohio and in uh, different federal courts and, and things like that. Um, I originally never really set out to get into the auto industry. Uh, it all kind of happened by accident with me. And I find that true with a lot of people. Um, I find either yes. people are born into it or it happens by accident. Very few people are specifically see seeking it out. Um, but I also like to say that I was actually born of the auto industry. And what I mean by that is that, that my parents actually met at a at a dealership many years ago. My mom was working there. My dad had a, a Corvette that he brought in for service and they they hit it off and, you know, all said and done. Now, when that I was born, neither one was working at a dealership at the time, but Anyway, so I, I went to law school. I was working for a for an insurance defense firm. Um, one of our largest clients was Daimler Chrysler. So we had a lot of lemon law cases that we were dealing with. We also had the dealers that would also get sued in the process. And that was kind of my first introduction to working with dealers. But I didn't want to continue working in insurance defense. I wanted to truly go out there and try cases. And I knew that the best experience that I could possibly ever get trying cases and my best opportunities would to become a prosecutor. So I, I became an assistant prosecutor attorney. I tried my cases. I had my fill. Um, and then I went to go work for a judge after that because I wanted to get back into the civil side. And I was working for a judge that had, he was one of eight in the state of Ohio that had the specialty commercial docket. So it was just business to business disputes. And so I was working those types of cases and I had different law firms that were making me offers after I got this judge through an election cycle um, and helped him with that. Um, I ended up taking one of these job offers and I was going to do commercial litigation cases. And right before I got started, they said, hey, we just acquired a practice working with car dealers. What do you think about working with them half the time? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I've kind of, I've done it before. Um, I'd be more than happy to do it again. And so I started with the firm and before I knew it, I was running the dealership practice group. I really loved working with the dealers. Um, no, no, no uh, offense to the dealers at all here, but 
they had a lot of issues. Uh, you know, there's there's employee <laughs> issues, there's manufacturer issues. If you're on the new car side of things, there's also a ton of different regulators and it's a very complex business. And so that's how I first kind of really, truly started focusing on working with the car dealers. And before I knew it, um, you know, we were, we were seeing some of the same things that were happening. Um, we were actually doing some compliance and proactive things to try to prevent things from happening to our dealers. And through this process, I got to know a gentleman by the name of Greg Levy. He was a general manager at the time. Mm-hmm of Columbus Fair Auto Auction. And he had been working with Complinet, basically sitting on their board for a number of years. And he said, hey, there's an opportunity with Complinet. Uh, The gentleman at the time, the founder, um, Phil Troy, was 76 years old. uh, So he was looking to kind of bring in some other other folks to kind of participate. And uh, through that process, you know, I started talking with Greg and started you know, having discussion, we started looking at everything that Compliant was doing. And I remember having a conversation with Greg before that conversation about, you know, hey, maybe we can start up our own compliance company. He said, you should really check out what they do. And I was really impressed by Compliant and all the processes and the people and even having the platform that we have. And I was very excited about what they were doing. And, you know, I went all in and that's ultimately what led me to to Compliant. What year was that? Man, so that was uh that was almost five years ago at this point. So that was in 2018. So in 2018, that's when I I became uh, full time with Complinet. Excellent. What um what is it about uh tell well tell us what Complinet does. What are some of the the big things you do or the your the main gist of your work? Great. So with with Complinet, we are a comprehensive, complete compliance solution that's solely focused in the auto industry. And we have different programs depending upon how how the operations of the dealership are set up. And we work with uh, some of the largest dealership groups in the country. And we also work with uh, much smaller dealerships, buy here, pay here's, um, other independents. And what we always do is we always try to focus on what their need sets are. And we we kind of pair with, with those need sets. And so we have different programs. We have an environmental health and safety program, for example, that focuses on things like OSHA and EPA and DOT sort of compliance. We also have a a program for finance, sales, and advertising. We have a program for information security or what we call privacy and safeguards. And then we're also on the human resources side. And then we also have some focuses as it relates to buy here, pay here dealers, um, whether those are independent buy here, pay here dealers, or, you know, maybe a, a dealership group has decided that they want to get into that space. But we, those are, those are kind of the key things that we're focusing on. And we have programs that are available to, to essentially every type of dealer that's out there. Yes, I see why that is, because when you look at the headlines of the Federal Trade Commission or the EEOC and all these groups, boy, they're all targeting all those areas that you're that you guys cover. So that's uh, I I can see why it would keep you guys busy. Well, the one the one thing we never want to do, Jeff, is uh, we never want to just talk about something and then not have some sort of solution for it. So when these new regulations are coming out, you know, they're they they create a lot of anxiety. Um, they create a lot of anxiety for the dealers because they 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 want to be compliant. They just they just don't necessarily know how to, right? Sure. And so yeah. we always we always try to help form 
uh, different solution sets uh, using our platform, our process, and our people to be able to drive compliance and to help help simplify it for the dealers. That's what I was going to ask you. How do you do that? Because if you're a dealer and you read too much about, you know, government compliance or regulation or all these things, you could be, I can imagine as a, I'm thinking about an independent dealer, regular mom and pop, or even a, a bigger mom and pop to be overwhelmed with the things that you're required to do. So how do you do that? How do you get them to take compliance seriously without overwhelming them? Yeah, so so absolutely. So Jeff, the one thing that we always focus on is we focus on uh, basically these three things that I've already mentioned, our platform, our process, and our people. One of the biggest mistakes that we see in the auto industry is someone thinking that, you know, they can just handle it all themselves, right? Because let's let's face it, every single moment that they're focusing on compliance is moments that they're not spending selling or servicing vehicles, right? right. And they can't possibly stay on top of every single regulation that's out there and how they're, how they're changing and how they're being interpreted by all these different regulatory bodies. So, so for us, we have built a compliance management system. It's a cloud-based compliance management system. We call it ABLE. Um, so ABLE makes them able to be compliant. And within our system, we have different KPIs that have been set up for each one of the various programs and dashboards. So we're focusing on the things that, that are important to help keep them on top of that. KPI. Yeah. Do. Yeah. So uh, key performance indicators. Uh, right. So KP, KPIs uh, to be able to really focus on the things that are necessary. So for example, we have different policies and procedures uh, that they need to have in place, depending upon which program that we're dealing with. There's also mandatory trainings oftentimes with some of these regulations. So we're also providing them with the trainings. We'll conduct assessments. And when I say an assessment, there's various types of assessments that we conduct. It could be uh, some yes, no questionnaires that we're sending out electronically. Um, it could be that we're reviewing someone's website we could be reviewing deal jackets. We could be coming on site and doing an on-site inspection or audit. Um, those are all types of assessments that we have. And then we have different tools um, that are that are within our platform that help uh, help simplify and make things easier. But really what it comes down to is it comes down to our people in our process. So we always have a compliance consultant that is assigned to each one of our dealerships. And that consultant is essentially the one that is responsible for making sure that that things are trending in the right way and that we're driving a culture of compliance. And there's a certain process that we have set up too, whether it be onboarding, um, but we're also holding quarterly meetings to make sure that everything is trending in the right direction and that we're talking about things that are happening in the industry, why issues that we're finding need to be remediated and they need to be fixed. And of course, we're we're tracking all of this within our system on top of that. Um, but that's really kind of the key is having you know, the, the platform, the process, and the people to be able to make sure that we're driving everything in the right direction. Because when it comes down to it, it's it's just, it's too difficult uh, to make a profit. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to lose all your profits to some sort of regulatory action or to sure. the plaintiff's attorneys, essentially. What is what is typically, and I'm going to get into the specific, specific issues that are kind of on the horizon now, but before that, what when you have dealers approach you guys? I mean, obviously you're at all the conventions and you know you're pitching your wares. But what, what when you get a typical independent dealer is what I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. When they come to you, why are they coming to you? What what's prompted that? 
Yeah. So, so typically on the independent dealer side, and I mean, the, uh, I would say the, the past year has been a little atypical and I'll mm -hmm. say the past year has been atypical because um, there is a, a revised regulation uh, that's out there. It's the FTC safeguards rule. Right. Um, and the FTC safeguards rule focuses on um, certain administrative, technical and physical safeguards as it relates to customer information of financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And it applies to dealers because they regularly assist consumers in obtaining credit. Um, so therefore they have to comply with that. So we've had, we've had a lot of dealers from the independent side that have approached us for various reasons because they're trying to get in compliance and they're trying to understand what even they have to do. So there's, there's a bit of an education process that happens. Uh, typically our, our sales process is more of an educational process. You know, we're sitting down and we're talking to them about what needs to be done and uh, by the way, we also have built a platform that really tracks those things that that have to be done and make making sure that they're actually happening. Um, so that's that's been the sales cycle in the in the past year. Um, one thing that we we do get approached with um, on the independent side is, you know, how how do we potentially stop, you know, some sort of consumer complaint from from happening? And what I always like to tell people is that number one, it starts with having a, a program that focuses on, you know, where they're typically going to have some sort of consumer complaint happening. So that's where our F&I sales and advertising program fits in. But we also have a consumer complaint management tool. Um, and when you think about it, typically when you have a regulator or you have plaintiff's attorneys uh, that start knocking on the door, it's usually because you have a very unhappy consumer. And mm -hmm. especially with the regulators, um, and I'll give you a prime example of this. Uh, the head of the CFPB was recently at a policy conference with NIADA. And one of the questions that was posed to him is, how do you decide who you're going to kind of focus on? And one of the things that he mentions was consumer complaints. So we like to say that, hey, let's focus on doing the right things. And let's also, as a stopgap, make sure that you have a consumer complaint management tool that can also make sure that when you do have an unsatisfied customer for whatever reason, let's say there was a breakdown in the process or something else was happening, let's make sure that that person is getting to the right person at your dealership to deal right. with it because they might be running into a wall. The consumer <clears throat> might be running into the wall. Most consumers will give an opportunity for the business to fix the issue, but if they're not getting to the right person and maybe the salesperson isn't telling the higher ups, you know, a manager, the owner, whoever it is that, Hey, I'm having this issue because they're afraid that they're going to look bad for whatever right. reason. Right. So then all of a sudden the Better Business Bureau gets involved or the attorney general's office or the FTC in some situations, or sometimes it's a plaintiff's attorney. Um, and in those situations, what you want to do is you want to you want to have them complain to you as opposed to going to them and trying to get those things resolved as, as quickly as possible, because once you get those those other entities and lawyers involved you know you're you're going to lose at the end of the yes. at the end of the day and when i say lose it doesn't mean that you're going to lose the case but now you're spending time not selling and servicing vehicles and Funny, you're also yeah. spending money on the attorney so from that perspective you're you're losing at that point so let's try to stop those things from happening by stopping 
um, or resolving quickly those consumer complaints. And you stop the consumer complaints by by doing the right things. And then when when it gets beyond that, you know, quickly resolving them and, and getting those resolved. Yeah, that's so huge. And that's in every walk of life, it seems, you know, you got a bill collector or something like that. It's always, you know, not to ignore those issues. Now, you mentioned safeguards. There was a little change in safeguards this year, a little bit of a delay. Can you talk about that? Because that's a big issue. And also, um, well, I understand we talked about this, you know, middle of last year, that there are dealers that think they're not, this isn't applicable to them. and And it is. So if you can explain that. Yeah, so that's a that's a loaded question. So Jeff, I'll give you a little bit of background about the safeguards rule. So the safeguards rule originally took effect in two thousand and three, mm-hmm. um, and there were certain things that were required. There there had to be someone that was in charge of the program. You had to have a written information security program that was really focusing on how you're going to protect the the customer information that was in, entrusted to your dealership. Um, there was a requirement for things like risk assessments and to monitor and test systems. Um, and then there were also some uh, some considerations of like think about doing training. It was it was a it was a much more vague rule than what it is today. So what has happened is there were there were data breaches after data breaches after data breaches, and the FTC continued to go after businesses. And as they were going after these businesses, whether it be Equifax or you know different companies like that, they were focusing on the things that they were doing wrong, and they were they were. Saying, well, look, you weren't doing this, you weren't doing that. So, what essentially the FTC has done is they revised the rule to get rid of, you know, any vagueness that was there, and said these are the specific things that you have to do. And we like to tell dealers that there's essentially ten things that you really need to focus on. And for those dealers that think that the FTC safeguards rule does not apply to them, um, I hate to say this, but that's not, that's not the correct interpretation. There are, um, regardless of size, um, there are things that you have to do no matter what. Okay. And there are, there are some provisions that if you have less than 5,000 consumer records total that you've collected for all the years that you've been in business, there's a couple things that you don't have to do, but by and large, they have to do just about everything under the FTC safeguards rule. Um, so if you want to get into the specifics of that, Jeff, we can. Uh, but the the safeguards rule does, in fact, require every dealer of every size, unless they're purely doing cash deals, purely doing cash deals. Um, but they're, they're going to be required to uh, basically comply with the FTC safeguards rule. Um, so yeah, and I, I can think talk I... a little bit more. Yeah, we've and and I've been you were just talking about before the podcast and AAA you had done a presentation on this and you had talked me through it before. So I, I would I would just say because of time limitations for dealers who are interested in knowing about this, um definitely reach out to a company like ComplyNet because they do have these specific points they can walk you through. Are there first of all, uh two things on that. One, are there things that jump out at you immediately that you'd say of those 10 points that stuff they can look at right now. And then also the the new rules were supposed to go in effect at the beginning of the year, but there's been a change in that. If you could talk about those two things. Yeah. So, so Jeff, there, there were certain provisions, basically the old 
old requirements under the safeguards rule are still in effect, okay? And so they revised the rule. And so things like having uh, someone that's in charge and they've, they've renamed that person to be a qualified individual, but there has to be someone that's in charge of your program at the dealership. And that person uh, has to implement, oversee, and enforce it. And you could potentially you know, have a third party that's involved. But if you have a third party involved, you have to have someone from your dealership that's overseeing that person. <laughs> uh, but, but with that said, you still have to have that. You still have to go through a risk assessment process. You still have to have a written information security program. You still have to monitor your, your systems and conduct other periodic risk assessments and change your information security program based on what's in there. So all that stuff is in effect right now. But the things that... Um, there, there were some provisions that were originally supposed to go into effect on December the 9th that yeah. had been moved till uh, June 9th of 2023. So they, so the FTC essentially gave a six-month extension to some of these other provisions. But of note with that is that now the FTC is not just requiring a written information security program, but they're also going to be requiring a written incident response plan. So if there is some sort of event, a data breach, even just someone walking into a file room when they're not supposed to, there's supposed to be a written incident incident response plan about how to respond to that and whether or not there's notification procedures and how to recover and how to remediate. There's also a requirement that there be a written annual report that is provided to the board of directors or an equivalent governing body or the top executives um, at the business. And the, the purpose of that is the FTC wants to make sure that there's accountability. They don't want you to just put someone in charge of the program and say, okay, I thought that they were doing everything that they need to do. No, they're going to have to provide you with an annual report. And you better believe it if, if there is something that happens and the FTC looks into this, they're going to be asking for the information security program, the incident response plan, and they're going to be asking for that annual report because they want to see they're going going to want to see what that says you know was the qualified individual suggesting that you do things and you decide eh, i'm not going to do that because it costs too much or um was it a situation where it was saying that okay everything looks good here so that's that's a big aspect of it another big aspect is that there are specific technical requirements that are needed now so for all information systems so electronic systems that have customer information there is now a requirement that there be things like encryption and multi-factor authentication um, and that there would be activity logging. So essentially audit trails built within those systems. And then the FTC also is requiring things like continuous monitoring of these information systems and absent effective continuous monitoring penetration testing with cybersecurity professionals at least once a year or vulnerability scanning at least twice a year. Um, and of course, many of these systems that the dealerships are using that warehouse this type of information are coming from vendors. So what about vendors? Well, the rule now requires that you go through an assessment process to determine these things with your, with your service providers and that you contractually obligate them uh, to protect the information. And you essentially have to make sure that they're capable of safeguarding the customer information the same way that your dealership is also required to do so. Holy cow. You're freaking out dealers everywhere. What, <laughs> have, you, have you guys dealt with dealers since this you know new proposed rule or which will be in effect in June come in and, and what, what's the process like? Does it take a lot of time for them or, you know, for you to work with them and, and how do you, 
how do you calm their nerves? Yeah, so 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 absolutely. So we 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 try to simplify it as much as we possibly can for the dealers. We have built out into our system essentially a a tool set to be able to manage this process and get them on track. Um, we we will help them build their information security program. We provide all the trainings that are necessary. We build the incident response plan. We help them with the annual report. We'll do things like phishing penetration testing or simulated phishing attacks uh, to see if people are falling prey to those uh, mm. because 91% of all hacking is starting with phishing, according right. to different studies by Google and others uh, that, are, that are out there. Um, we also help them go through a check down process on the assessments. Um, we will we'll do the assessment. We will look at their access controls. We're also looking at their technical controls. We work with their IT companies. And if they don't have an IT company, we will put them in touch with one so they can put the things in that are necessary. And then the other thing that we do is within our system is we have a, a module that will help them automate this process of working with their service providers for the assessments and for the agreement. So our, our system will actually send out an assessment and an agreement to any service providers that might have access to this to this information. So we're helping yeah. automate a lot of these systems. Yeah, it's great. Deals really do have to. That's why these, these uh, exhibit halls are so important. Companies like yourselves that do stuff like this, and I, probably not the only one, but it's always good to know to visit those places to learn a little bit more about what you can, what the availability is, and what the process is. Because people again freak out and they think it's going to be a a big long thing, and you know, and sometimes it is, but you can always obviously delegate that or outsource that. So that's really good. You know, it's funny you talked about uh, fishing. I remember there's a FBI person doing a thing at uh, NIDA. And said the same thing about fishing, and it was interesting because you have these you have these businesses or dealerships that do a lot of, you know, purchase orders and things like that. They would get them on that. It's funny because I get that stuff. I don't I don't deal with that type of thing. But you'll they'll they would get caught on things like that. Like they they did so many purchase orders and agreements and stuff that they just go through and agree or whatever and click on it, and it that's where they would get them on things like that because they did so many of those things. Yeah, so I, I I had the pleasure of trying to bust some of my uh, partners one one time, and I I caught one of them, and I walk into his office, and he's on the phone with his wife, uh, saying, "Hey, you know what's what's the password to to our Amazon account?" And I said, uh, "I said, hey, uh, you need to get off the phone." No, no, I'm trying to deal with something. I busted you on phishing. You fell for a phishing attack. That's what you're on the phone about. <laughs> No, no, I didn't. Yeah, no, I promise you did. And you even gave away your credentials in the situation. I did. You're right. I did. Oh, man, that's that's fantastic. That was great. Uh, yeah, it's great that it actually came from us as opposed to someone else. Right. But, right. You know, it's it's just way too easy for people to do things that are that are just wrong in these situations, whether it be right. clicking on a link, downloading information or they're they're potentially giving away their credentials, but even just doing something like clicking on a link, it could, it could be an yeah. unsubscribe link. Yes. Right? And the problem is that that unsubscribe link is, you know, click on that and now it's downloading some sort of malware. And, you know, now they're hacked into your system. They can see everything that's going on. You know, they're remoting into your right. computer now, you know, there's just so many things. So, so we really focus a lot on trying to train people on how to recognize a phishing email and how to react properly because 
what we have seen is that there can be a failure rate of almost 30% um, when, when people don't have this type of training. But when there is this type of training that's happening, those numbers are just, they, they quickly start to minimize because now people understand what they need to do and the, the right actions and how they recognize these, these phishing attacks. Yeah. And they're so tricky. I mean, as you look at me, you know, I'll get stuff and I'll like, wow, I'll think of it to myself. That's really good. Cause it's almost like it targets your behaviors or something that they know that that's something that you would be, you know, interested in. So that's, that's really good stuff. Um, so let me jump off safeguards. That's some great stuff. And again, people um, get information on the safeguards real night. You do have some time to uh, get on board with it. Um, and again, because like you said, it covers all the employee, I mean, all the customer records you'd have over the length of your business, that 5,000 number is not very big when you think about somebody being in business for 10 years and selling 20 cars a month or whatever. So um, what about, I, you know what, I mentioned this to you in our emails earlier, and I didn't, I, I don't know if you were, if this is something you talk about, but the FTC has now this proposed rule on non-compete clauses. Is that something that is in your guys' wheelhouse or? Yeah, so so for sure. Um, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to see what happens with the FTC on this. And um, you know, one of the questions would be, you know, does this apply to dealers? And I will tell you, I was here recently at a at a conference of different dealers, and one of the questions was asked, you know, how many of you utilize non-competes at your dealership and about half of them put up their hands. So, um, and this was, this was, this was a group of franchise dealers. Um, so in the independent space, I, I do know that there are non-competes that are used, uh, but in this particular situation, it was franchise dealers, um, but about half of them were using them. So this new rule that's being proposed by the FTC, it's being proposed um, apparently uh, at least what what they're saying about it is the reason why they're proposing it is because they think that it's going to help drive up wages for for workers right and essentially what the FTC is proposing is is that businesses across the country and this will preempt any sort of state laws but businesses across the country will not be allowed to have non-compete clauses they'll still be able to have non-solicitation clauses so not being able to solicit for example, you know, customers of that particular business, uh, but would basically get rid of the the non-competition part. So, you know, they could potentially go from one dealership to the next if, if right. it was passed. The only exception is if you were a business owner and you had sold your business to somebody else and you had a non-compete as a result of that, that would still apply. But essentially how this would operate is that if this is passed, the FTC would basically give each one of these businesses about six months to get in compliance with this. And what they would have to do is they would have to send a letter to each one of their employees individually telling them that, Hey, if you have a non-compete, that no longer applies to you. So to be very, very clear about that. And before the FTC came out with this new proposed rule, by the way, they had announced an enforcement action that they were actually taking against um, a business for their non-competes that they were using because in the FTC sees eyes that even the non-competes that they were using, even though they were allowed to have non-competes, they basically came back and said that, well, some of these non-competes that you're using are overly broad. They've already been you know, told by courts that you can't have that long of a time period or, you know, 
this sort of radius, you know, so on and so forth. So they basically have said that, well, in these situations where, you know, even the courts have said that the non-competes that they're using are not entirely valid, they've, they've basically been saying that those are unfair and deceptive acts and practices. And quite frankly, that's the one, that's the one uh, authority that the FTC likes to exercise the most. It's what they call their Section 5 authority for unfair and deceptive acts and practices. We call it UDAP, right? But going back to safeguards really quickly, just know that even the FTC safeguards rule, and while that only applies to financial institutions, which includes dealers and lenders, um, their Section 5 authority for the FTC they use that Section 5 authority, and when there are data breaches that happen against businesses that are not financial institutions, they use that, and they say, basically, these businesses have engaged in unfair and deceptive acts and practices by not doing things like continuous monitoring of systems, not providing trainings, not encrypting, not using multi-factor authentication. So going back to that just really quickly, I always tell these dealers that even though there is a deadline for some of these provisions to go into effect now on June the 9th. Yes. The FCC has other authority and they can use that other authority to come after you if, if they need to. So this stuff you need to get in place as, as quickly as possible uh, because there's too much exposure and there's too much risk of a regulatory action should something bad like that happen. In addition to, you know, just the, the sheer fact that this could be a real knock on someone's reputation if they were to suffer a, a major event. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting with the non-compete that I'm glad you raised your hand. Cause I'm sure uh, you asked them to raise your hand. Cause I'm curious as to how many people do use those. And I always wondered, what was the time period? Is it 30 days or whatever? And you mentioned, I didn't think about geography, which obviously would probably be the most important thing for, for a dealer, I would guess. Um, so what about UDEP? Now, when FCC has been hammering dealers on, you know, so-called junk fees and add-on prod, uh, products, does that fall under that? I mean, is that? It does. Yep. Yep. So Jeff, what they're using, they're using that section five authority once again. So they're basically saying that the uh, business is engaging in some sort of unfair or deceptive act or practice um, under Section 5 of the FTC Act. And it's it's Section 5 of the FTC Act, which is why they call it their Section 5 authority. Um, so what, what's been what's been happening in the marketplace, um, and you might remember this many, many years ago when the CFPB, shortly after it was, it was formed, they went after companies like Ally, for example. Mm-hmm. And with Ally, you know, they, they hit them with these very, very large fines. It was kind of the first time that you've ever seen anything like that happen and it, you know you're talking about you know 100 million dollars sort sorts of fines that we're talking about and it wasn't just them there were other lenders that we're dealing with but the CFPB wanted to take these big big swings get these big enforcement actions that were happening to really get everyone else scared and to to ultimately fall in line if you're not going to fall in line they're going to try to use that baseball bat and 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 come after you so in those actions what they were focusing on though they were focusing on the markup on interest rates okay so essentially the dealer markup on the interest rates and they were doing a statistical analysis and trying to determine 
whether or not the markup on interest rates was the same for uh, minorities versus Caucasians, for example. And what they were finding is in those cases, they felt like that there was a statistical analysis showing that the markup was higher for minorities than it was for Caucasians. And they considered that to be a discriminatory act or practice, and they considered that to be an unfair and deceptive act or practice. So the FTC has that same sort of authority, and the FTC has started using that authority, which was really interesting about that is, is that a gentleman by the name of Rohit Chopra was at the CFPB. He came over to the FTC. He was involved in the first action that they really took against a dealership. It was a, a Honda dealership out of uh, the New York area. Um, but essentially, they hit them with these unfair and deceptive acts or practices. And they focused focused on the dealer markup on the interest rate. But they were also focusing on other fees that were being uh, kind of what they considered crammed in there um, and being imposed upon people. And they didn't really understand that they were voluntary uh, sort of fees or fees that weren't even allowed to be charged in the first place. So they they took that action. Uh, of course, Rohit Chopra left the FTC and he is now heading up the CFPB, but he left behind a legacy. And yeah. so now the legacy is, is the same and they're trying to take these big swings um, and they've been going after some, some dealership groups and they're trying to get others to fall in line and, and do the same thing. So the FTC is is using their authority there. The FTC has also proposed what they call a motor vehicle trade regulation rule that's really focused on the auto industry on top of that um, to to kind of do the same thing with the, the safeguards rule where, you know, let's get rid of any sort of questions about what they need to do here, but let's let's impose upon the industry, these different things to do, and they even have a process behind it, which if it if it gets passed, it's going to be very, very difficult to to comply with this. But um, and that's something we can dive into if you if you want to, Jeff. You know what? In terms of I always wonder about what does a dealer do about the issues of disparate impact, the idea of that you're charging more for one group of people than another. And how do they determine that that's not related to credit scores or you know, income or all these other things. How do you, I don't understand how a dealer, a dealer could do everything. They don't have the race, even listen to the app and they're doing all these things. And then it turns out, it seems that analytically they're, they're discriminating. How, how do they fight against that? Yeah. So, so Jeff, it's, it's, a, it's okay to uh, do risk-based risk -based pricing. Okay. Right. So that's, that's something that they can certainly happen uh, through that process, but we're really talking about how much, like what percentage is getting marked up on each one of these, on each one of these loans. So okay. um, one of the things that certainly a dealer can do is they can really set, you know, a, a standard fee that's being imposed. And if they do in fact make a deviation, there should only be specific reasons why they're making a deviation from that. I've, I've seen some dealers that will say, we're not going to make a deviation no matter what. So it's going to be it's going to be a 2% markup for essentially everybody, right? Or they might just say it's a flat fee and, you know, it's going to be this flat fee across the board for everybody. So it's not anything additional for anyone that's happening. Are um, they doing that? Excuse me. Are they doing that specifically to avoid getting in trouble for anything like that? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yep. Okay. These are, these are definitely proactive steps that they're, that they're taking. Uh, sometimes some of the lenders will do a statistical analysis and give some information back uh, to the dealer saying, Hey, we went through this process. We looked at this and here's how we think you're, you're doing. We think you're within, you know, the standards and that sort of thing. Uh, but it really takes, you know, kind of doing the tracking and it, it, you know, one of the things that, that we do is we'll also look in a deal jacket and we'll see, you know, on that deal recap sheet, you know, what what that information is and kind of run through an, a little bit of analysis ourselves to kind yep. of give give a lens into the dealer. Let me ask you that. When you have a dealer who's, in your eyes, clearly not being discriminatory, but the numbers suggest it, what are what is really happening there or how do you help them fix that, I guess? Yeah. So, and, and that's a great, that's a great point. And Jeff, one of the things that I would say is that with, with the dealers that are being hit with this, um, you know, in one of the cases there was, there were allegations saying that a general manager was, you know, making different comments that would suggest that it was, it was targeted discrimination. Okay. Gotcha. But in the other cases, no, it wasn't. Um, I, and I think what's happening, and especially with what happened with a lot of the lenders and, and that sort of thing with the CFPB, you know, they're they're not they're not trying to be discriminatory. They're they're trying to do the right thing, but but it's just the fact that they didn't have any sort of focus on that piece. So what we look for, and we truly believe that that dealers need this, but they truly need what we call a fair credit lending policy. Um, and adopting that fair credit lending policy and actually following it. So one of the recent cases with the FTC, um, it was a, a $3.38 million enforcement action against a Maryland-based dealership group. And one of the things that the FTC noted was that they actually had a policy and procedure in place for this. However, they weren't following it. They weren't enforcing it, oh, right? God. So, so they kind of looked at that as an extra like black eye on, on the dealership because they felt like, well, you guys clearly knew better and you didn't do what you were supposed to. Um, so in that case, what it really comes down to, though, is that they didn't really have anyone that was really, you know, staying on top of the program and reviewing, you know, when there was a deviation that was happening and whether or not that was for a good reason and whether or not there were different, you know, it was happening in different situations with the same people involved and kind of going through a statistical analysis of that because that's that's what they expect to have happen. Um, and quite fr quite frankly, you know, there there is a choice to have no dealer markup whatsoever. Of course, you're not right. going to make anything on the finance side if that happens. But, you know, it is important for dealers to go through this process because the FTC has talked about in the past of getting rid of these dealer markups altogether. Okay, so that's something that has been discussed by a couple of the commissioners. And the FTC is made up of five commissioners, and it doesn't take very many of them to ultimately decide to come up with a set of rules and you know it's a bipartisan board but it always is you know inside of what it it basically falls in line with whoever is president at the time so this administration we have three democratic 
uh, FTC commissioners. And um, currently there's only one uh, Republican because the other one has uh, had stepped off the board and it hasn't been replaced yet at this point. Um, but right now with this administration, they, they have a lot of things that they're trying to get accomplished. And there's a lot of rules that they're trying to get a, get passed and they're likely to get passed. We just don't know exactly when they get passed. Um, you know, there's no set time frame for them to pass these things. And on top of that, we don't always necessarily know how the final rule is going to look like because they do right. typically go through some sort of modification process. Um, but it's it's very important in the industry right now that there be a focus on this sort of process for, you know, the 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 markups on the interest rates, fair credit lending policy. But it's kind of the same thing even with voluntary protection products. So things like the you know, the service contracts and other, you know, other things that are being sold in the F&I departments, because typically there there is a markup to those also. And the FTC is talking about in this motor vehicle trade regulation rule. One of the things that they want to have happen is they want it published on every dealer's website what the add-on products could possibly be in the F&I department, what the price of those add-on products are. And if you don't have a set price, then what's kind of the range that that is that is basically offered and sold uh, to consumers. So they want it, they want it to be very standardized. They want they want a set markup, they want a, a set price for add-on products. They even they they even are focusing very much on how the dealers are um, setting the price of a vehicle and how that's being reflected online in advertisements on social media. Holy cow. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Holy cow. That just seems like, oh my goodness, we laugh about the deal, you know, the deal, this the dealer's agreement and the, and the deal jacket. Holy cow. That's like a whole different, that's like a library right there. Um, there is there there there's going to be potentially a lot of additional things that are going to have to happen and quite frankly in looking at this motor vehicle trade regulation rule one of my biggest issues in looking at this rule is that there is a very very set process with date and time stamps and forms that have to be utilized by the dealer if this rule gets passed and it's going to be very very difficult uh, to truly be in compliance with that rule. So for example, one of the things that they're requiring is, is that if someone starts inquiring about a vehicle and think about this in the sales process, you know, hey, I want to find out about this car. I want to find out about this car. I want to find out about this car. They have to make the disclosure about the actual, like what they call an offering price of the vehicle. And the offering price, the calculation is basically Every single fee that goes into that, if I want to purchase that vehicle right now, if I say I want to buy that thing in ca for cash right now, what would be the price of it? And the only exceptions to what goes into the offering price are mandatory government fees, things like tax title registration, if there's some sort of emission test and that sort of thing. But what does not go into it are things like discretionary dock fees and, and those types of things. So the dock fee would actually be rolled in now to the to the offering price of that vehicle. And so you can imagine if they're if they're trying to advertise this online, you could see where now all of a sudden the offering price is, is changing quite a bit, you know, whether it be on, you know, cars.com or Auto Trader or Car Gurus or what other 
other platform is being utilized uh, for that. Um, but there, there is going to be a change there. And then every single time that if there's an inquiry that happens in writing, it has to be in writing to that customer. So that's the very first thing that you have to tell them is what the offering price is. And then when you go through the process of actually selling it, there's going to be required forms for to put in front of them to say, here's the offering price. Do you want to buy, buy this for cash? And you need to start talking about that before you can ever talk about even like the financing side of things oh, so think about how this is just going to revolutionize potentially the way that you sell cars and you talk about cars because how many times do you do you have consumers and that really want to talk about what their monthly payment's going to be well you're not going to even be able to get to that process until you really go through the process that's being required by the ftc oh my but stay, goodness stay tuned on that one i will say that there was a lot of uh pushback by the national associations uh even the state associations as it related to this rule uh because they just see it as a very very difficult framework but then there's some other from what I understand, there's there also might be some litigation that happens if this rule passes the way that it is right now. If it maybe passes, it has different requirements. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but there are some potential opportunities for some litigation over this one. So motor vehicle trade regulation rule, the best thing that I can say right now is stay tuned. We'll see what ha happens. And uh, I'm sure that we'll probably want to do an extra podcast if, uh, <laughs> if something like that that gets passed because there's going to be a lot to talk about there. Okay, great, great. And uh, as we get near the end, um, in terms of uh, what do you typically, what are typical issues that um, dealers, typical mistakes that dealers make that you guys see when you're, say, reviewing a deal jacket or reviewing advertising or, or a, a walk on the lot? Yeah, so that's a great question, Jeff. So, um, you know, there's always there's always federal issues and there's always state issues. You know, it's it's important to understand what the specific issues are in each one of the states because states have their own their own requirements. But, you know, when it comes down to it, what it what it really is necessary is it's it's necessary to have an independent third party that's coming in there and really looking at these issues uh, because you don't want to have your own team just kind of policing things because they only know so much um, and they're not necessarily focused on this. But, you know, there's there's a number of issues that that we will typically find in in deal jackets. And, it you know, it ranges anywhere from, you know, not having um not having certain forms and documentation that's mm -hmm. in the deal jacket, sometimes not properly filling out and signing the documentation um, to, you know, just a whole slew of other issues that are yeah. in there. So from, from a used car side, you know, just imagine you're looking at a deal and you're going to want to see that certain documentation is going to be within that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I look at a used car and I automatically think, okay, well, how's this different from a new car deal? Well, number one, you know, there should be an FTC buyer's guide, right? That's that's right. being collected and should have all the information filled out on the back. By the way, the actual form of the FTC buyer's guide uh, should be the the right one. Um, there's there's there is an opportunity to use the wrong ones because uh, a few years back the FTC changed what the FTC buyer's guide looks like. Right. Uh, then there's also some states that have implied warranties and some don't. So there's a couple different options on what to use there. And then there's information that has to go on to the back um, about who to contact if there's an issue. And there is opportunities too to fill out these FTC buyer's guides the wrong way. So, you know, that's something that we would we would look at. And, you know, the, the fine
fines now for even potentially an FTC buyer's guide violation is over $50,000 per violation. Oh my uh, so the FTC just raised their, their penalties here in January uh, for inflation uh, and pretty much <laughs> the same with most, uh, most federal agencies. They, they increase their penalties by 7.745%. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Which was actually kind of tame, considering uh, how much we've seen the uh, the vehicle <laughs> values go up over yes. you know the past couple of years here. Um, but with that said, you know there's there's a number of things that we look for. You know, it could be that you know they they have a WIO form, but you know it's not being completed, or they they're not using a WIO form and indicating that there was nothing uh, that okay. was owed on that transaction. Also, it's always a great, if you're using vehicle history reports, it's very important to have, you know, the vehicle history report that's going into the deal jacket, that it's being reviewed with the customer, that they even have some sort of indication on their acknowledgement that they've they've seen it, they've reviewed it. Um, there was a case that just happened here recently with, uh, with CarMax. Uh, where different state attorney generals had taken an action. There was a $1 million settlement that happened. But this is kind of revolutionary news here in the auto industry because what this one was about was about safety recalls. Okay, so from the use side, there was never the requirement that there be a disclosure, at least not under federal law, of these safety recalls. Right. But essentially what has happened now is the states and the states, just like the federal, they have their own unfair and deceptive acts and practices. It's usually a Consumer Sales Practices Act or Deceptive Trade Practice Act, you know, sort of legislation. But basically, they said that, well, in some situations, vehicles were being sold and, you know, they were being represented as, you know, great cars. But it turns out that they had a safety recall that was on that. Uh -huh. And they were considering that to be an unfair and deceptive acts and practice. So it's yeah. important in that situation to to actually go through that process, have a form that's in each one, each one of the deals and going through that check to see if there is, in fact, a safety recall and having a disclosure that's made along with it through that process. Um, and there should be a policy that the that the dealership has and there should be training that's happening for the employees so they understand what their obligations are. And one thing that I that I do see is, is that when it comes to uh, the employees, employees generally want to do the right thing, but they will look for shortcuts if they can take one. And when it comes to filling out forms and taking the right action there, sometimes if they don't see the importance of it, They'll, they'll sometimes skip certain steps in the process. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to go through an education process with the sales folks and the F&I folks to make sure that they understand why these different forms and procedures are built in and what the repercussions are potentially if they're not being followed. So um, a, big, a big part of what we do is, is truly education and making sure that we're educating, you know, the line employees and upper management about what the obligations are. Yeah, I was going to say, boy, I tell you what, <laughs> you're in a business that's not going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, let me ask you one more last thing. Um, is there um, anything else that jumps out at you that dealers should be aware of? And we, you really hit on the big ones. Um, but anything else in terms of compliance that you guys see as important that maybe I'm not asking you about or dealers miss more often than not? 
Yeah. So, so Jeff, it, I, I ran an interesting pool at the beginning of the year and I was trying to hit different contacts within the auto industry. And I, I gave them four choices on, you know, what are the things right now heading into 2023 that you're worried about the most? And I gave, I gave four options to that. One was the FTC safeguards rule. The other one was about the motor vehicle trade regulation rule. Uh, one was about the discriminatory pricing enforcement actions that are happening. And then the other one had to do with EV safety. And what I what I found was is that um, the top response of what they were concerned about were the discriminatory pricing actions. Number right. two was the motor vehicle trade regulation rule. Number three was EV safety. And number four was the safeguards rule. Okay. Really? Wow. So, yeah. That's... And I, w- I was a little bit surprised by that because and maybe it's because there have been a lot of dealers that have, you know, really understood that they need a program and they found right. a provider like Complina to help them with that process. Right. Um, but those are those are some of the big things that that are certainly looming um, out in the industry right now. Well, that's cool. And 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 um, as we wrap up, that this is excellent. And I think that um, it gives a lot of dealers a lot to think about to also understand that there are solutions to these problems, and um, and that there are challenges. Man, they're not going to go away. And obviously, they can see you guys at the conventions. You, you see at the shows. You're usually in the exhibitor hall. So that's and it's a good time. I always find it for dealers. Exhibits halls are the best places or the panels where you guys are on them because you get the free advice. You get the free, you get a a sense of what you're getting into before you start, but also you can ask those personal questions to your dealership situation. And for dealers listening, you think you're the only one. And obviously you're not because I talk to dealers all the time and you guys are all dealing with the same thing. So it is good that there are solutions available, but uh, boy, Adam, I think this is great. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add, but uh, uh, I really appreciate all the information and, and ideas that you've given us. And I love the, the examples that you've given of things that are in the news or things that you guys have dealt with. Um, Cause it kind of helped dealers get an idea of what's, what's available and also what the challenges are. Yeah. So, so Jeff, the only other thing that I would mention too is, is that the CFPB has also been coming up with some proposed rules uh, that are going to apply to non-bank financial institutions. So this would be lenders and potentially buy here, pay here dealers too. And they are looking to create a registry of essentially every single one of these uh, companies. And they, they want them to register on an annual basis and let them know whether or not there was in fact any sort of consumer action that was taken against them that resulted in a judgment, enforcement action, consent order, those sorts of things. Because what they're looking to do is they're looking to have what they call a repeat offender uh, registry, right? Oh, and yeah, so they're they're looking to put everyone on the map. They're also they've also introduced a rule where if there are things that are in your finance contracts or other contracts that are potentially uh, waiving certain rights, like uh, someone's rights under the Service Member Civil Relief Act, um, mm-hmm. you also take those documents and and also submit those to the CFPB so they can be reviewed by the CFPB and other regulators and potentially plaintiffs attorneys too, which is, wow. which is you know, so, so they're definitely trying to take a, very proactive approach and understanding uh, that stuff. And like I said, I, I expect for at least the next couple of years, this is going to be a very, very aggressive 
um, regulatory sort of environment where they're going to be coming out with different rules and different regulatory enforcement actions. Uh, so right now is is definitely the time that, that dealers need to focus on this because if you don't, it could spell absolute disaster for you and, and your dealership. And by the way, when they're taking these actions, they're not just going after the businesses. Sometimes they're actually going after the owners, the officers, the managers of the companies that they also think were involved or had some sort of knowledge about this. So they're actually taking personal actions. And I know, you know, I've heard this in the past with somebody There's, well, if they shut me down, I'll just open up another business. Well, what are you going to do if they come after you personally? Right. And now, yeah. now they're trying to enforce that judgment. So. What, what I would say is, you know, when it comes down to this, you don't want to do it yourself. You need someone else that's going to come in here and that's going to help you. And you need a platform so you're not working off a bunch of spreadsheets and trying to track a bunch of things disparately. But you need a unified platform that's going to provide you with complete compliance. You need the right process and you need the right people that are going to be behind that. So for anyone that would be interested in, you know, potentially learning more about CompliNet and what we do, we are more than happy to meet with you at, at these conventions. You can go to complynet.com um, under our contact us uh, section. There's a book of solutions demo. We'd be more than happy to talk to you. When we talk to people, it's always a very educational sort of approach. We talk about what is necessary and what solutions we're going to provide that are going to be able to help them. And then they can make a decision whether or not that's something they want to move forward with. So yeah, very much very much yeah. appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience and, you know, let them know about, you know, what's kind of happening in the marketplace and what we might be able to do to try to help them. Yeah, I appreciate you. Well, you took the word out of my mouth. You were saying proactive and then you changed to aggressive. And that's the way it sounds to me. So um, very challenging. But, you know, again, it's it's better for dealers to be prepared than, you know, to get blindsided or, or be on the defense. It's better to be on the offense. Um, so Adam Crowell. Thank you so much, ComplyNet, for being part of this podcast and for giving us a, a ton of information. I do appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Compliance requirements in the retail auto industry don't go away. They just seem to expand. The new year brings a couple of major requirements for independent dealers and some proposed rules, which would also mean big changes. The Federal Trade Commission's most recent proposed rule is to ban non-compete clauses and it has scheduled a February 16th public hearing for people to discuss their experience with such clauses. The elephant in the room now is the FTC's proposed motor vehicle trade and regulation rule. It's something the FTC would like published on every dealer's website. That would include every add-on product the dealer sells, what the price of those products are, and if there's no set price, then the range of cost offered to customers. Last month, Mike Stanton, president and CEO of the National Automobile Dealers Association, warned about the broad scope of this proposed rule. For example, under this requirement, if a customer called and asked if a dealer had an F-150 in stock, the dealer would be required to cite every 150 they have in stock, including the stock number and offering price. However, there's been a lot of pushback by national and state associations, as well as possible litigation if the rule is passed. The rule was introduced last summer. The FTC called it a, quote, first step toward establishing a set of guidelines that would provide consumers with key protections against dealers who unlawfully charge junk fees without their consent or engage in bait-and-switch advertising.
Members of the Virginia Independent Automobile Dealers Association went to their state capital recently to lobby on behalf of their industry. The association's lobbying and its efforts to boost dealer education are things Executive Director Alvin Melendez is proud to talk about. This would be separate from continuing education, which is already mandated by the state. The agenda for the education event planned for this year is still in planning, but Melendez offered a bit of a preview. There will be people from the NIADA come in to speak, along with Justin Osborne, the CEO of Automotive Reinsurance Concepts, to talk on sales training. Last year, the association helped pass the bill to make sure continuing education isn't just a box-checking activity, and they also helped with a bill to combat catalytic converter theft, which is a nationwide plague. Independent dealers in Washington lobbied against a bill that would require them to put an express warranty on cars up to 125,000 miles. The bill originated after a customer bought a car in the state last year for $13,000 and then shortly returned it to the dealer, stating it needed around $3,000 in repair. The dealer argued that under the implied warranty, he did not have to do the repairs as the car was sold as is. Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson partnered with a state representative to introduce HB 1184, the Used Motor Vehicle Express Warranties Act. It would require a warranty on used vehicles based on a sliding scale depending on the mileage at the time of purchase. Association members who testified had many questions for committee members, which were all things the legislators had not thought of. Some other issues raised included the higher costs that these laws would push onto consumers, which may make consumers be more likely to buy from other consumers instead of dealers. At press time, WSIADA's lobbyists expect there would be a hearing later this month. Want to save up to 80% on steep new tire prices? Premium used tires, like used cars, are a safe and affordable option when purchased from reputable sellers like Champ Tires. With more than 40,000 tires in stock, all you need to do is go to champtires.com to find the exact size, brand, and model, and tread depth you need. Every tire is inspected and air tested, and shipping is free. This savings tip works when you need to replace one, two, or even all four tires. Shop at champtires.com today. Thanks for listening to Used Car News Podcast. Each month, we'll bring you fast and reliable news that car dealers can rely on for this evolving industry. For a free subscription of Used Car News, please go to usedcarnews.com. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Make sure to share us on social media and like and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, Executive Producer. Doug Harding, Creative Director. Jacob Sutherland, Director. Producers Jason Gentarola and Matt Golden. And Jin Rei Zhang, Video Producer. All rights reserved.